Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 30. In the last episode, I covered the Israelite leader Barak, the little known about Heber the Kenite, and the much greater detail about his wife, Yael. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up at the end of Judges 4 and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. At the end of chapter 4, we're told that, on that day, meaning the day Yael assassinated Sisera, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. But Jabin remained as king. Instead, the hand of the Israelites bore harder and harder on King Jabin until they destroyed him. But we're not told how long that took. What follows after this, in the next chapter, is the Song of Deborah, and at the end of that chapter, we learn that the land had rest for 40 years. In the song, there are a couple new places to cover, along with the song itself. The Song of Deborah, found in Judges 5, is a style of music known as a victory hymn, likely sung by Deborah and Barak, then recorded for posterity. In reality, it was likely sung for many years before it was ever recorded in written form. It archives the defeat of the Canaanite adversaries by a few of the tribes of Israel. Biblical scholars generally identify the song as one of the oldest parts of the Bible, dating to somewhere during the 12th century B.C. This dating is based on its grammar and context. But to be clear, a few recent theories propose a date at least 500 years later, meaning no earlier than the 7th century B.C. What's also interesting is that the song had a few factual differences from the events described just one chapter earlier. In the last episode, I covered how Judges 4 had Sisera hiding under a rug while the song makes no mention of this. Also, the song names six participating tribes, Ephraim, Benjamin, Zebulon, Issachar, Naphtali, and Machir, a.k.a. the son of Manasseh. Judges 4 has only two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun. The song also makes mention of Sisera as the oppressor, with no reference to his boss, King Jobin of Hazor. Some of these are easily explained away, such as leaving out Jabin, but the count of the tribes requires a bit more of a speculative reach, one I'll avoid. As for the type of writing, there are several places where a victory hymn can be found in the Old Testament, such as Moses' victory song, found in Exodus 15, and sung after the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptian army and David's Song of Victory, found in 2 Samuel 22, and recited after David killed several Philistine giants, but not Goliath. Instead, giants defeated well after David was king. Likely you haven't heard much about those conquests, but they did elicit a victory hymn. What makes the Song of Deborah stand out is that it celebrates a military victory of two women, Deborah the prophet and Yael the warrior or at least a tyrant killer. Some think these two heroines are used as a literary device to show that the victory is all due to God. If this is true, 
then the same could be equally considered for any victories won by man. There really isn't anything more of substance to add to the song, so I'll move along. Next up would normally be the play Seur, but I covered it in Volume 1, Chapter 6, Episode 7, released in April 2020. Which brings me to the Kishon River. The mention in Judges is the first place it's found in the text, and given that it translates to the river of slaughter or dismemberment, along with the events that just transpired there, none of this should remotely be a surprise. The river begins as a wadi and flows from the highlands to the Mediterranean near the city of Haifa. It's only about 43 miles, 70 kilometers from source to sea. And given where it begins, it tends to flow year-round, though in an extremely dry year. Very upstream portions can turn dry as well, but that's a rarity. I'll get to why in a few minutes. Beginning in the Gilboa Mountains and flowing in a west-northwesterly direction through the Jezreel Valley, finally emptying into the Haifa Bay. Overall, it drains about 420 square miles, 1,100 square kilometers. Not a very large area in our western mindset, but looming rather large in history, especially when you consider it drains much of the Jezreel Valley and portions of western Galilee, along with parts of the slopes of Mount Carmel. Overall, the Kishon is mentioned six times in the Old Testament, including both Judges 4 and 5. Again in 1 Kings, as the site where the prophets of Baal were executed on Elijah's orders. This was after Elijah's conquest with the prophets, a contest that occurred nearby on Mount Carmel. Obviously, Elijah won. The river was mentioned again in Psalm 83 but this was merely referring back to Sisera. There really isn't much to add about it, except for very recent history. After World War I, with the defeat of the Ottomans, and while the region was under British control, the British Mandate, there was an uptick in Jewish settlers. Those that arrived via the port of Haifa were temporarily settled in tents in several quarantine camps erected within the Kishon estuary. Keep in mind, this was during the so-called Spanish flu epidemic. To make matters worse, many of the immigrants were infected with malaria while there. Apparently, this part of the river was well known for such infections. Not long after this, the same general area was developed into an industrial zone including a power station, railway workshops, chemical factories, sewage plants, agricultural runoff, and a petroleum refinery. Most of these led to a highly polluted river, including with mercury and other heavy metals, so polluted that on a few occasions, the river actually caught on fire. A $200-plus million cleanup began in 2012 and was scheduled to last three years. And that's the Kishon River in Judges 5. Chapter 6 begins the cycle of Israel sinning again, and this time falling into the hands of the Midianites. The first place mentioned in the chapter is Ophrah, not quite, but really close to the spelling of the retired talk show host. 
The name itself translates to fawn, as in a young deer. While the meaning of the name is clear, the actual location is not, or the understanding if it was a single place, or a few with the same name. The first such place, or potential place, was the city of Benjamin, and found in Joshua 18. This may be another name for Ephron, found in 2 Chronicles. It may also be another name for Ephraim, found in the New Testament Gospel of John. If these are correct, then it's likely the modern city of Tebe, located in Palestinian-controlled territory. An Israeli settlement, Ophra, is nearby. According to the 4th century Greek bishop Epiphanius, it was located about 5 miles, 9 kilometers east of Bethel. Another place, this one sometimes referred to as Ophra of the Bezerites, was the city of Manasseh, about 6 miles, 10 kilometers southwest of Shechem. It was here that Gideon lived, which is why I'm covering it now. After the rising judge defeated the Midianites, he massacred the captured kings here. After this, he sought to make Ophrah a religious site, similar to Shiloh. But, as the story turned, all of this became a snare to Gideon and his family, to the point that after his death, his immediate family continued to live at Ophrah, at least until they were killed by Gideon's son, Abimelech. Modernly, it's likely the same as Farata, and that's Ophrah, in chapter 6. Finally, it feels like we're making some progress. A new place mentioned in chapter 7 is the Spring of Herod. And no, it's not even spelled the same as the New Testament ruler. No relation. It's also known as the Spring of Goliath. Obviously, the second name wasn't even considered for the Book of Judges. So much needed to occur first. Whichever name you go with, it's a spring on the southern border of the Jezreel Valley and the location of a well-known 13th century A.D. battle, the Battle of Anjalit. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll have a little more on that battle in a few minutes. It's located in the Herod Valley, more generally in the eastern portion of the Jezreel Valley, while the Jezreel Valley is generally drained via the Kishon River to the Mediterranean Sea, the Herod Valley portion is drained through the Herod Stream to the Jordan River. The spring is the largest such feature on the northern slope of Mount Gilboa. Like most springs, and not just in the region, but nearly everywhere, the source of water is rainwater that percolates into the limestone hills of Samaria then collects in an aquifer beneath the regional cities of Nablus and Janine. The water springs forth from the hills as they slope north towards the valleys. At this valley, the waters emerge from a natural cave known as Gideon's Cave. It produces about 360 cubic meters of water per hour, which equates to over 95,000 gallons, or 360,000 liters per hour a sizable amount of production. Actually, an almost unbelievable amount, which makes me question my source. But I dug in, and according to the Israeli Nature and Parks Authority, the 360 cubic meters per hour production is correct. 
No wonder people have lived near the spring, seemingly forever. According to a survey of Western Palestine in 1882, Victor Guerin claimed that the rock from which the fountain springs has been artificially hollowed into a cavern. And I wonder about this conclusion, as limestone is a really soft rock, and many natural caves across the globe are the result of water naturally eroding away limestone. The spring has been of particular importance throughout the Old Testament period. Obviously for Gideon, it's also connected to Goliath's death at the sling-wielding hands of David. Though, there's another place in Judea that also claims that distinction. I'll explore both when I get to the David story in the text. The spring of Herod has also been proposed as the location where Saul and sons were defeated, then killed by the Philistines in 1 Samuel. This, too, has a possible alternate location. But, like many places found in the ancient text, none of these identifications are certain. There are a few other notable springs in the area, any of which could serve as the one in many of the stories. And with that, many modern scholars pick a side for many of the events of the Old Testament that are said to have occurred near a spring. As you would be correct in suspecting, a reliable spring in an otherwise dry desert will always have people living nearby. In the 12th century AD, the spring changed hands several times, alternating between Muslim forces and the Crusaders. Archaeological evidence from the period shows the usual, including grain mills, burial tombs, and oil presses. In 1260, at what's become known as the Battle of Jalut, the Mamluks defeated the Mongol army of Hulagu Khan. What makes this battle of specific historic significance is it marked a height of the extent of the Mongol conquest and was the first time a Mongol advance was permanently beaten back in direct combat on the battlefield. Later, in the 19th century, and while the Ottomans were in control of the region, small enclaves of Jewish families moved to the area leasing and buying land, and establishing farms, then a village. This would eventually lead to the Jewish village of Ein Herod. Today, the spring lies within Israel and on the West Bank, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Judges 7. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get it from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.